You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. O Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. This book recounts moment by moment the process that gave birth to the state of Israel. Collins and Lapierre weave a tapestry of shattered hopes, valor, and fierce pride as the Arabs, Jews, and British collide in their fight for control of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem meticulously recreates this historic struggle. It penetrates the battle from the inside, exploring each party's interests, intentions, and concessions as the city of their dreams teeters on the brink of destruction. From the Jewish fighters and their heroic commanders to the Arab chieftain whose death in battle doomed his cause, along with the Mufti of Jerusalem's support for Hitler and the extermination of the Jews, but inspired a generation of Palestinians, O Jerusalem tells the three-dimensional story of this high-stakes emotional conflict. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 354 of this podcast, that is the brief summary at goodreads.com where I like to post book reviews in addition to posting them to the com, I also like posting them to Goodreads. So you can go and find me there at goodreads.com. Follow me as I read books and very often, increasingly often, write reviews, do podcast episodes, outlining my big takeaways from the books I'm reading. But before we get into O Jerusalem, which I just finished after almost exactly five months, I want to talk a little bit about being on days off. I am just starting my seven days off. I work a one week on, one week off schedule as a systems integrator. And I am very happy to be on days off, particularly given the fact that I got a call about 11.30 last night. And it is now 2.30 this morning. And I have not slept a wink between. I did sleep for maybe an hour and a half, thereabouts, between when I went to bed, and when I was awakened to the sound of my phone ringing, I had a bit of an issue that I needed to sort out, figure out, try and resolve for some of the folks that work the night shift, monitoring these oil and gas wells, making sure that everything is running in good status, in good condition, checking for alarms, dispatching people as needed to bring wells back online or check them out or whatever. And so I resolved the issue. That's good. That's a positive. But once the issue was resolved, it took me about an hour. I laid back down and I just could not get back to sleep. My mind was just switched on. And I laid there awake, trying to fall asleep, trying to just shut off my mind, trying to turn the thoughts down to a low simmer so I could go back to sleep. And I just couldn't quite do it. I could not quite do it. I think I laid awake for a good 30, 45 minutes. And then finally I said, you know what? If I'm going to be awake anyways, I will just get up and I'll see what's in the news. I'll do something at my computer that is not work. I work at my computer or I work at the company-provided computer, but I will sit at my computer and get caught up on the latest with confirmation hearings for Biden's nominee to replace Justin Breyer. Uh, Katanji Jackson-Brown, she has been appearing before the Senate Judicial Committee this past week, and let me just say, I am not impressed. I did not expect to be impressed. President Biden's politics and mine are 
diametrically opposed in most ways. I think fundamentally, foundationally, we are uh, very much at odds. And so then it doesn't surprise me, it shouldn't surprise anyone, that we come to very opposite conclusions about subsequent questions. But I watched a bit of some of the backs and forths of various senators asking questions of Justice Brown. And I also watched a good bit of The Verdict with Ted Cruz, hosted by Michael Knowles, as they talked about some of the issues, particularly with regards to very light sentencing of convicted sex offenders, people in possession of child pornography, people convicted of sexually abusing or even raping children. Some very concerning things with regards to critical race theory as well. Long and short of it, Katanji Brown-Jackson is somebody who should not sit on the Supreme Court. We shouldn't put people on the Supreme Court who believe that our country is inherently racist and that the Founding Fathers were all inherently racist and that the Constitution is inherently racist and that it can mean whatever we want it to mean. It can also not mean whatever we don't want it to mean. We should not have such people interpreting the Constitution and interpreting the constitutionality of laws, policies, edicts, executive orders, etc., we just shouldn't. That's a good rule of thumb. Don't put people on the Supreme Court who think your country sucks. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, very concerned for Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is a superb conservative justice, uh, to my knowledge, as I understand it. And he has recently been sick and Leftists have wasted no time in cheering on the possibility that he will no longer be on the Supreme Court. I think that is very unfortunate. And I think it just goes to show how we can't suppose that a couple of Supreme Court nominees by former President Donald Trump means that we are in the clear as a country. Yes, it was a good reason to vote for a Republican that we would get Supreme Court nominees and hopefully, maybe, just maybe, overturn Roe versus Wade. But things happen. And I think the circumstances surrounding Justice Scalia's death were highly suspicious. Highly, highly suspicious. If something very tragic happens to Clarence Thomas, where he is no longer sitting on the Supreme Court, in an election year where it looks like Biden and the Democrats are going to have their electoral clocks cleaned, I am going to very much suspect that uh, the game is afoot, that foul play had some part in that course of events. But, you know, just as easily as I can say that, I could also say, and this is definitely the case, even though foul play may be the case, as well, whatever happens with the Supreme Court, whatever happens ultimately with the United States of America, there is a God in heaven who sees all and nothing proceeds with regards to the destiny of this country or the world or anyone in the world without God permitting that it should happen. If the Democrats continue getting their way, this country will be destroyed. Plain and simple. Uh, and I don't say that to be hyperbolic or to exaggerate my point. I am not stretching my meaning for dramatic effect. If the Democrats continue getting their way, they will really and truly and fully destroy this country. And I think that's what they want, a uh, great many of them. I think their idea of an America they would be proud of is a very, very, very different America. They think that this one's fundamentally broken, and that's why they latch on to 
these radical progressive causes because they provide an opportunity to overhaul the system because they think that the system sucks because they didn't come up with it. We'll see what happens. I personally think that any system devised by people, containing people, administered by people, shepherded and overseen and held accountable by people is going to have its flaws. But sometimes those flaws are minor and sometimes those flaws are fatal. And we are dabbling with the kinds of flaws which are fatal to a country, to a culture, to a people. If we don't get wise, we are going to rue the day. So I think we should get wise. I think we should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I don't think that the choice as presented by many well-meaning Christians is the right choice, that we either A, go 110% on board with getting very, very worked up, having high blood pressure, dying prematurely of a heart attack or a stroke because we're so worked up about what's going on and we're so engaged in a kind of conservative activism. I don't think it's either that or you just shrug and you say, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. No. I have some bills on my desk from the past week of my working 12-hour shifts and I don't shrug when I get a bill in the mail that I have coming to me. We recently had some repairs done to our house up in Sydney, Montana, because we're trying to get ready to sell it. And it would be not a super spiritual, hyper spiritual, super godly response for me to say, oh, there's some bills for the repair work on our house up in Montana. We're not living there. I don't really want to pay these. I don't feel like it. I haven't even inspected the work. I'm not going to be able to inspect the work. I just, nah. No, no thanks. No, you you can't operate that way. You can't function that way. That's not a responsible, God-honoring, reasonable, healthy way to live life. It's not when we're talking about our own personal affairs, our own personal effects, and it's not when we're talking about the running of a country. But what it just might be is that we have to watch and see how these things develop. We have to be diligent and good stewards of what it is that the Lord has entrusted to us. I, for one, especially with a new job, a new baby, and everything that's going on in the world, I feel a increasing conviction that some of the biggest things I can do to affect this country for the good include loving my wife, taking care of her, loving my children, my eight children, raising them, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, teaching them to be kind to one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up, taking care of my family, doing a good job at whatever it is that I take on. Also, sometimes being circumspect and humble and open to adjusting the plans about what it is that one can reasonably do all at the same time. So maybe some of what I can do is say, okay, I'm going to pare down and prioritize on these things here. This is what I can affect. This is what I'm going to affect. Take, for instance, this podcast. Hey, it's 1.30 in the morning, and I can't sleep. I could toss and turn. I could stress myself out. I could rack my brain thinking about a whole lot of things that have to do with other people's choices that I can't really control, and I shouldn't try to control. But what can I do? What can I influence? What can I positively affect? Well, for starters, I could do what I did do. I got up, went to my computer, decided to catch up on what's happening in the world, what's going on. I'm going to check it out. And then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to say a little bit on something that I think is important. And I'm going to share that. And this audience, the audience, you, 
listening to this podcast. It's a growing audience. If you haven't yet, I would encourage you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, whatever podcast hosting platform you're listening to this on right now. If there's another one you like better, but you just happen to find this podcast on this one, take a look. I challenge you. Find a platform that is not hosting the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Take your pick and subscribe on that one, or you can go to thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. Sign up for email alerts when episodes are published to the WordPress site. You'll get them right to your inbox. You can check them out with the write-up and featured images, etc., etc. A lot easier to share probably as well if you want to share podcast episodes from thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to social media. Share them with your friends. That's always welcome as well. We can grow this audience and hopefully encourage people to take the longer view, to have an internal perspective, to have a broader mind in the best sense of the term, not to be tolerant of wickedness and folly, not to be affirming of things that are evil and wicked and wrong and untrue, but to take a measured approach, to take the long view, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. That's the big idea. If that sounds like your cup of tea, keep tuning in. But enough of the sales pitch. I want to talk about everything, and that includes in this case, Oh, Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. It took me just over five months to finish. I started back in October, just finished it three days ago. And a couple of big high-level thoughts. One, it was very well-written. It was very easy to follow. It was very detailed, but it wasn't tedious. And that can be difficult to do. So kudos to Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. They did a fine job, including a lot of detail, but keeping it in a narrative fashion to where the action proceeds apace. But this is the story of the founding of the modern nation of Israel, which interestingly, just a fun fact, just a fun little piece of trivia that I learned in listening to this book, there was some debate as to what to call this Jewish state, whether to call it Israel as a nod to the ancient biblical kingdom which God instituted, which God established and promised and then fulfilled his promise of, or another thought that was thrown out was calling it Zion. And I used to think that anti-Semitic folks were almost like a myth, right? They don't exist anymore if they ever did who knows where they are. Definitely the Nazis were anti-Semites, and you read throughout medieval history, throughout the history of Europe, all the way back to the Crusades, and probably before, persecutions of the Jews. And so you could say, well, okay, if the Jews are being singled out especially, there's anti-Semitism, but but right now, right today, that that doesn't happen. Well, it does, actually. In recent years, I have been more aware of the very anti-Jewish sentiment uh, that pervades certain corners of European and American society. And in my experience with the few and far between interactions I've had with people who are critical of Jews as a block, as a race, as a whole category of people, a lot of the contention seems to have to do with Zionism, which is this idea, as I understand it, that the Jews should have their own country, that it was promised to them, that God himself promised the Jews their own country, and that it's right for them to 
claim that promise as their own, and insofar as it depends on them, to endeavor to steward that promised country. There was a time before my time, but during my grandparents' lives, their young lives, there was a time when there was no country for Jews on the earth. And they just whatever country they happened to be in, any country that would permit them to be there, allow them freedom to do business, to live, to worship, to raise their families in some relative peace, or if not total peace, at least a tolerable level of persecution. And then World War II happened. And World War II shouldn't have been a shocker. I think an important takeaway as we look right now at World War III potentially kicking off, domino effect of, in part, including but not limited to, what's happening in Ukraine, we do well to look back at the last World War. And the last two, or the first two, World War I, World War II, were much closer together. And World War I doesn't really get a whole lot of attention compared to World War II. I think in part because none of us have living relatives or new living relatives growing up, I don't think, who had served in World War I. But a great many, like myself, had grandparents who served in World War II who were of age. They were adults, young adults, during World War II. And so you get certain stories, and there's a connection point there where you feel like, hey, you know what, I, I know what that's about, kind of, and I'm affected by it. It changed the course of life for my grandparents, and then I can see some of how that in turn changed the course of life for my parents. And then it comes down to me and my brother, and it feels real. But if you look back at World War II, and if you read the backstory for World War II, a lot of the backstory for World War II is World War I, but you can go back and back and back and back as far as you want. You'll find that thread can be pulled on still more. Hitler's final solution to the Jewish problem, as he stated it, was something that you could have predicted just listening to his rhetoric. It wasn't necessary to wait until he actually was found out as murdering in mass, ordering that murder should happen en masse, millions of Jews. And here's where the anti-Semites come in, and they will say, no, we think that this purported Holocaust is just a Jewish conspiracy. The Jews have made it up to try and manipulate the world into feeling sorry for them. Well, I, I just think that that strange credulity that has far less credibility than claims that we faked the moon landing. Now, I think we've been to the moon. Uh, we can suppose that reasonably. I think there's enough evidence. And you maybe, if you don't believe that, I, I think maybe you lack imagination and you just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why that would be that people would grab onto the idea that we faked the moon landing. Not that it couldn't have happened, but I don't, I don't think it did happen. But the Holocaust being faked is just, I, I, in my humble opinion, is just silly. Uh, that claim. And so I hold it as self-evident. I am sufficiently convinced that the Holocaust happened, and if Hitler had not been stopped, if the Third Reich had not fallen, if Germany would have succeeded in overrunning all of Europe, and holding on to what it had taken, Hitler would have killed many millions more Jews and other undesirables. He was pursuing a plan to purify the human race, as he saw it, to cleanse the race of the germplasm of society. He was pursuing a eugenics cure 
to all of what ails humanity. And he thought, he held, that the Jews were what ails us. Not just the Jews, it's important to note, plenty of other types of people, but something especially about the Jews just really, really bothered him and has bothered a lot of people throughout history. There's something peculiar about the Jewish people. And actually, that's not accidental. That's by design. That's something that God wanted to be the case. He wanted it to be clear that the Jews were his people and a peculiar people. And so in some measure, he made them peculiar. And in some measure, the response to the Jewish people, I think, as hidden behind a lot of bogus claims that they are always engaged in dark, nefarious things behind the scenes. Human sacrifice and dark witchcraft and crazy things as a way of trying to justify destroying them, an open season policy on them and particularly their property. And that's happened for hundreds of years, it's very convenient to just scapegoat an entire class of people, particularly when it turns out that they possess some wealth you might like to get your hands on. And so what do we see with as successful as Germany was in overrunning Europe and rounding up Jews all over Europe and shipping them to concentration camps where they were supposed to work those who were selected for work, and many were starved to death once the food started running out and there wasn't enough food for the soldiers and German citizens and also the residents of these concentration camps. They just gassed them and shot them and starved them to death and beat them to death and experimented on them medically and did all manner of evil things, anything they could imagine doing. And how did they do this? Well, they did it first by dehumanizing the Jews, not regarding them as men, women, and children made in the image of Almighty God. And so what you have at the close of World War II is you have Jewish refugees all over the world who, with good reason, were fed up and tired of always being guests, always being dependent on the goodwill of the townspeople or the government of whatever foreign country they found themselves living in. If they were to do well and be successful, successful bankers and merchants and businessmen, newspapermen, media men, politicians, academics, what have you, you name it, if they were successful, they became objects of envy. And so what they, many of them, decided with, again, justification, sound reasons as I see it, what they decided was that it would be worth it to endeavor to get their own country back. And I think they were right to desire that. I think that the founding of the modern nation of Israel was good and valid, and I support the fact that it happened. My only regret is that it didn't happen sooner, but there again, as I was talking at the top of this episode about whatever the fate of the United States of America is going to be, ultimately, God's timing was intentional and not accidental. God was not asleep at the wheel. His timing and his purposes and his promises and the fulfillment of his promises proceeded exactly as he wanted it to. And so the timing of the founding of the modern nation of Israel is just fine with me. It doesn't make me angry. I don't resent it. I don't look askew at it and think there's something fishy about it. I think that most of the hubbub in the West is leftover anti-Semitism combined with an excessive yearning to not have Islamic terrorists blow up European countries and the U.S. I think we are less afraid here in the U.S. than many of our 
cousins across the pond in Europe and the old world, in part because we're far better armed, our citizenry is, we're not quite so worried about knife attacks and bombings and whatnot. A little more stout when it comes to stopping such things, dealing with such things, putting such threats down. But I thought just for anyhow, since I just finished this book about the founding of Israel, what, 70, 80 years on, I thought, you know, I am going to just check out the Jerusalem Post because I'm curious, what is the latest news out of Israel? What are some of the headlines, some of the news stories? What's going on in that country that one could reasonably ask whether such things would be happening if not for the modern nation of Israel? I found a curious article, and this might just strike everyone as odd to choose this kind of an article to highlight what kind of a country I think Israel is. The author is Judy Siegel Itzkovich. She published this March 20th, updated it March 21st. So it's very fresh, not even a week old. The title is Newborn Baby's Smell Has Opposite Effects on Parents. Study. There's a professor, Noam Sobel, quoted, Because infants can't communicate verbally with their mothers, they have the possibility of communicating with chemicals. And so this is all about pheromones and whatnot and hormones and whatnot and what effects those have when you smell uh, the top of a baby's head, a newborn baby's head. And what they find is that men actually experience a decrease in aggression when they smell a newborn baby. And women actually experience an increase in aggression. Which is very, very interesting. Very interesting. The same smell, the same chemical reaction in a newborn baby has opposite effects on men and women. Very curious. Professor Noam Sobel of the Department of Brain Sciences and Dr. Eva Michor in cooperation with the Azrieli National Institute for Human Brain Imaging and Research recently published a paper in the peer-reviewed journal Science Advances. They found that in terrestrial an- uh, mammals, not just animals, mammals in particular, volatile chemicals that emanate from the body can effectively trigger or block aggression in the same species. The language here is generic and scientific, but they do go on to talk about humans in particular, not just mammals in the abstract, but humans in particular. And I just wondered to myself, would this be the kind of article in a publication by a Jerusalem Post absent the founding of the modern nation of Israel? I am skeptical. I doubt it. Now, also, too, if you go to the homepage for the Jerusalem Post, there's a lot of concern here for what's going on in the Middle East. IRGC chief threatens Israel, U.S., with Iranian missiles. Uh, Of course. U.S. offering $1 million to report on Israeli human rights violations. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is pictured. That does not surprise me all that much, especially as the Biden administration is trying to cozy up to OPEC countries. It would rather that OPEC make up for what we are not producing enough of with Russian oil off the market over the Ukraine crisis. War is the word. Scrolling down. Israeli companies design unmanned helicopter with precision fire. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Arab countries in the Middle East can't or don't produce high-tech weapons and systems and that they don't study 
things like the effect that smelling a newborn child has on men and women. But I would contend that there is something qualitatively different about the kinds of pursuits that the Jewish people make a habit of sharing with the world. And I think that this is by design. I think this is part of what God wanted to do with the Jewish people when he set them aside, when he called them his people. Now, don't ask me here exactly what I think of whether the Jews are still God's chosen people, given the fact that we have the church now. What I will say is that Paul writes to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, then to the rest. We also read in the New Testament that God extended this gift of salvation through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to more than just the Jews, in part to make the Jews jealous. And we know this. Even traditional Jewish people who don't believe that the New Testament is the inspired word of God, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they don't believe that the Messiah has even come yet, if they just work off of their Old Testament, they know that God's people did not keep faith with him. They disobeyed. They went whoring after the gods of the nations surrounding them. I mean, that's undeniable. And it's undeniable that God gave Israel and Judah over to their enemies because they had rebelled and they had gone whoring after other gods. But God also said that he had plans for good and not for evil. He had good plans and good purposes in the long run for his people. And even giving them over into the hands of their enemies for a time, and we could say for a time, you think, yeah, no kidding, long time, centuries, thousands of years even. But what is thousands of years to God? A few days. Even God giving his people into the hands of their enemies for a time is part of his larger purpose. And his larger purpose, the character of his purpose, not only does not change, it cannot change. It is unchangeable. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think, personally, and this is not something that I have well-developed and thoroughly researched. I know that there are disagreements about this. That's as much as I know. I don't always know what to make of some of those positions that make up the disagreement in their particulars. I feel a little bit like that scene from Fiddler on the Roof. He is right, and he is right. They can't both be right. But it seems to me as though, any way you slice it, there must be a purpose in God's mind for the fact that the modern nation of Israel exists. Furthermore, I think it is good. I think it is good that the United States of America has, so far as we have, had the back of Israel, the modern nation of Israel. I don't think that we have done as good of a job in supporting them as we could have. But there again, someone will point out that Israel is full of people. And people do not always behave themselves. And what did we just say about God giving Israel over into the hands of her enemies because she had broken faith with him? And so also, we are people. They were people and we are people. And so when there is a misbehavior, if there's a disagreement or a difference of opinion between the United States of America and Israel, the issue could be that America is in the wrong, and if a Democrat is in the White House, or if Democrats are controlling one or both houses of Congress, you can guarantee that we will be in the wrong on some important things. Or there could be something wrong with persons governing Israel, but not God. 
And I don't think we should find fault with the modern nation of Israel existing. In fact, I think there's something perverse and evil and twisted and wrong about objecting to the existence of Israel or objecting to the assertion of the right to exist represented by a robust military, muscular responses to terrorist attacks against the Jewish people in Israel. I think there's something perverse about always blaming Israel. And I wondered to myself, as Israel is more and more successful, despite its small size, how many folks presume that Israel is the oppressor. Israel is the bad actor just because they're doing better, just because they're doing well. Well, yeah, but what if they're doing well because God is blessing them? Has that thought occurred to us? And if God is blessing them and has blessed them in fulfillment of his promises, why would we go searching for something to find fault with in them just because the surrounding countries, the countries around them, do not have as high of a standard of living, do not have as free of people, do not have as happy of people, why would we go looking for something to find fault with, trying to make Israel the bogeyman, the cause of all the problems in the world? I have no interest in that. So I read, O Jerusalem, and it did seem to me, although I, I can't verify and validate each and every last detail. It did seem to me like it was well-researched. It had a ring of truth about it. It seemed like it was even-handed. It seemed to me as though it dealt with wrongdoing and also heroism and motivation and ambition in a way that rings true. I'll say as well, if you don't have the 24 hours almost to read O Jerusalem, there's an excellent film by Otto Preminger called Exodus, based on a novel by Leon Uris, which covers the same event, the same time period, a lot of the same actors and same players and the same details that are covered in O Jerusalem. Paul Newman is excellent in that film. There's a few other lesser actors and actresses, less well-known, but still enjoyable, still fine actors, fine actresses. But Exodus is a very, very good film to watch on this, in my opinion. I've really enjoyed it. I've watched it a few times, watched it with my kids, with my boys, here maybe six to nine months ago, something like that. Really enjoyed watching it with them. But it brings up important points, this whole question of the existence of the modern nation of Israel, the modern state of Israel. Even for that matter, what Russia is doing with Ukraine right now. Now you could say, oh, Putin is violating international law. What is that? Who wrote the international law? Do you even know where this idea of international law is written and where it came from. Another excellent book to familiarize yourself is The Internationalists. Go check that one out if you want to understand better the New World Order from the perspective of people who think it's pretty swell. It all goes back to the close of World War One, the elites wanting to make sure that something like that never happened again. And then, of course, it did. But what they were trying to do is they were trying to form the United Nations. They were trying to form this international body that would be able to govern governments, essentially, and head off at the pass wars between nations, which could escalate into another world war. And this got all the more urgent with the arrival of nuclear weapons, as we can all feel right now with talk of what the effect would be if Russia or the U.S. started launching nukes. So you get this idea that this international body, the United Nations, 
will mediate disputes between nations, particularly territorial disputes or disputes which could turn into one side or the other trying to take territory. And a big controversy about all of this has to do with the idea that the borders of all these countries were supposed to be fixed. And then here comes the modern nation of Israel. Is Israel an illegal country? Does it have a right to exist based on terms of the internationalist agenda onto which all these countries around the world signed to to guarantee world peace and all that jazz? Not that it has. That was the idea. That was the claim. They're playing the long game, I guess. But quite frankly, it reminds me of that phrase, the right side of history. Progressives will say someone is on the wrong side of history if they take a traditional conservative position and someone is on the right side of history if they are taking whatever the progressive position happens to be at the moment. And it can change. Whatever it is today, if it becomes something else tomorrow, then you just have to adapt to whatever the newest thing is in order to be on the right side of history. Now, never mind that some of the newest things might actually be terrible ideas. No, no. They're very confident that the right side of history means you just agree with them on whatever they cook up next. But we're actually working very similar to all this deconstruction of gender. We're working against the laws of nature and in particular human nature and the nature of nations, cultures, to think that we can have long-term world peace. And actually, I think a lot of this business trying to deconstruct gender, trying to androgenize everyone, is part of that larger goal to bring about world peace by overhauling human nature. And actually, if you want to know the truth, I think that the internationalists showed their hand when during the Nuremberg trials, Nazi government officials, cabinet members, high-ups, generals, such and such, were put on trial for war crimes. And what were their war crimes? First and foremost, not trying to exterminate the Jews, men, women, and children, not heinous experiments, not gas chambers, not starving and torturing and executing in mass and burying in mass graves innocent men, women, and children. No, no. What the Nazis were put on trial for at Nuremberg was waging aggressive war against neighboring countries in violation of this new thing called international law, or I should say international law as it had been redefined. Search the Kellogg-Briand Pact, also called the Pact of Paris. August 27th, 1928, we are coming up on 100 years since it was signed. Britannica.com has a quick summary describing it as the multilateral agreement attempting to eliminate war as an instrument of national policy. It was the most grandiose of a series of peacekeeping efforts after World War I. And this is, again, this is what the book The Internationalists is about. Actually, I wrote a review of the book several years ago and ended up being followed by one of the authors of the book who apparently either liked my review or at least thought I was interesting enough to follow moving forward. I don't remember which of the two authors it was that was following me, but I was pretty tickled, actually. And I'm fairly sure that it was Scott J. Shapiro. Scott, if you're listening, can you confirm that, please? But I have a copy of their book on the shelf. I listened to it on audiobook. I bought a copy in print because I think it's a very important book that we need to understand in order to understand geopolitics and also domestic policy and also why 
this earnest desire to bring America down to the level of other countries around the world. Why the globalism? What is globalism about, actually? What's the big idea? And, and what does it have to do with maybe climate change and global warming? And what does it have to do maybe with the LGBTQ agenda? Well, I think what it has to do is, in order to bring about world peace, academics, politicians, the elites, the elites of society, the decision makers, the very important thinkers, the very serious people inside the good old boys club at the top. They realized quickly as they were talking about, okay, how do we make this Kellogg-Bryant pact actually stick? They realized in order to do it, we have to change human nature. We have to change the way people think. And R. R. Reno, chief editor of First Things Magazine, has another excellent book. I'm going to give you a ton of books to read here, so write them down. But R. R. Reno's got an excellent book called The Return of the Strong Gods, in which he talks about how the internationalists for 100 years now have been trying through education and the media, through policy decisions, through fiscal maneuvering, through efforts at home and abroad, they have been trying to wean us from the strong gods, which is to say the strong loyalties that we have to religion, to our nation, to our family. This is where you will see a lot of common themes, a lot of common threads suddenly come together. At the root, it's the same idea, just a kinder, gentler form of it. It's the same idea that the Nazis were pursuing with eugenics. Only what's really going to the gas chamber now is ideas. You put ideas in concentration camps, whereas the Nazis were putting people. And this is why the Babylon Bee is not able to get on Twitter right now. Actually, Adam Ford, the founder of the Babylon Bee, now CEO of NotTheBee.com, which I like to read regularly stay up on. I check it every day, actually, sometimes a few times a day. Adam Ford is no longer able to access Twitter either. I believe the chief editor of the Babylon Bee is also suspended. It's not about canceling the people. It's about canceling their way of thinking. It's about canceling the strong gods, as R.R. Reno says. And I think this is of a piece, too, with why the left is so consistently conflicted about the modern nation of Israel. Because if there is any kind of a holdover Christian reason to regard the Jewish people as a special people, as God's people, chosen, set apart, if there is still some vestige of that, well, then there's still a vestige of that so-called strong God. But on the other hand, you have the potential for Iran attacking Israel or Israel attacking Iran to kick off World War III. That could be a way that it starts. It could also start with China trying to take Taiwan. It could start with Russia trying to take Ukraine. But any way you slice it, it's not enough to be able to look at the founding of the modern nation of Israel and point out flawed people doing and saying some things which are indefensible to achieve this goal, to achieve this end. It's not enough to do that. You can do that anywhere you look at people. If you don't find such things, it's either because you're not looking hard enough and you don't want to find them, or because the people you're dealing with have done an especially good job of covering their tracks. It's interesting. I read here some of the audience reviews when I looked up Oh Jerusalem. I did a Google search. I Googled it. Now that DuckDuckGo, by the way, has decided that they're going to start working to uh, censor, essentially. I mean, I'll just I'll put the term on it, censor. 
search results for misinformation, so-called. So now, what's the difference, right? You, you're, you're not going to become the next Google, giving up on the whole reason why people were drawn to you. Duck, duck, go. Just saying. If you're going to be like that, then I might as well just use Google because Google is a better search engine objectively, except for the fact that they are manipulating the search results to try and social engineer us all into agreeing with their politics. So if you're going to do that too, I'll just go use Google. But there's audience reviews. And there's one here by an Ashraf Osman from a year ago. He writes... An eye-opener book should be read by all Arabs to know how Palestine was lost to the Zionists by planning and hard work. The Arabs did not lose a war in 1948. They lost to forces that worked on many parallels as shown in the book. Okay, so not a fan, sounds like. Just reading between the lines. But that's just it. Sometimes we think that the moment when we're going to decide whether we can save this country, America, the United States, will be when the shooting starts, right? Red Dawn, Russia tries to invade. Although they're having a hard enough time with Ukraine, short of nukes, they really could just play MC Hammer to know how that's going to go. Can't touch this if you were trying to figure that one out. China invades. Okay, well, good luck. You're going to have to take an all-of-the-above approach, and even then, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be not pretty and not fun, but good luck. But here's the thing, right? Here's, here's the deal. The same way in which the Jews won for themselves a country again in Israel, just reverse that. And that's how you lose the United States of America. It's not all shooting and bombs and fighting physically. Actually, a great deal of it is maneuvering, finagling, campaigning, being organized, being intentional, having good ideas, selling those ideas, pitching them effectively, successfully. Maybe sometimes playing your cards close to your chest until you're ready to launch everything all at once. I think that's kind of where we're at right now. I think we're seeing the left over the past few years, and even now, and more and more, and even Katanji Brown-Jackson and her confirmation hearings is yet another player, an important player in this. She really should be withdrawn. She should not be nominated. But of course, the Democrats want that too, That's part of why they appointed her. That's why Biden has named her. They think if she gets confirmed, cool, awesome. We've got a radical leftist on the Supreme Court. And if she doesn't get confirmed and the Republicans made sure that she didn't, then we can just do what we always do to try and get minorities and low-information voters to vote for us instead of the other guys. We'll just accuse the Republicans of being racists. Now, it's a curious thing. One of the questions, one of the very softball, you would think, questions that Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked was, can you define what a woman is? And she laughed and she said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm not a biologist, which just tells you everything you need to know about how the Democrats think we should think, which is to say they think that we should leave the thinking to people with advanced degrees, government by the experts, the best and the brightest, because that's democracy, I guess. One has to wonder then, is she a woman? Can she assert confidently, not knowing what a woman is, whether she is herself a woman? Also, for that matter, maybe we could ask, what is an African-American? Can you define an African-American? And it seems to me as though she has three qualifications, as the Biden administration sees it. 
She's an African-American woman. So there's two. And she's a radical leftist. But maybe she's not sure she's a woman. Maybe none of us should be sure she's a woman. So maybe she's not qualified in that regard. We can't be sure if we don't know what a woman is definitionally. But alas, I digress. I would recommend if you are curious about this whole question of international law, you should check out The Internationalists by Una Hathaway and Scott J. Shapiro. You should also check out O Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre for more information on the founding of the modern nation of Israel, the backstory there, who the players were, how that all went down. It's definitely worth a read. I think it could be instructive. Just saying. But I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to see now at a quarter till 4 a.m. If maybe, just maybe, now recording this podcast, now getting some of these things off my chest, maybe I can call it a night, lay down, get some sleep. So, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.